we're in a message series called Angels and Demons, and, um, and, and if you were with us last week, we talked about heaven, and we covered a lot of different things that scripture has to say about heaven, uh, and as much as we could really, there's so much more, but we couldn't, we couldn't hit everything in one week. Uh, it was one of my very favorite messages to teach because it was so unbelievably positive. Uh, we were talking about an eternity with Jesus, the absence of sin, the absence of death, the absence of pain, and, and an eternity in beauty and joy and holiness, and, and there were even at least four people last week that prayed to receive Christ or rededicate their life to Christ. Can we give God a shout of praise for that? That was incredible. And and so today, what I want to talk about is something that could be a little bit more challenging. Uh, The topic for this morning is hell. So we covered angels and demons in the first two weeks, and then we covered heaven last week. And so this week, it's the, the natural progression, I guess, of covering all the bases, we're, we're going to talk about hell. And, and the reason we're talking about hell is the same big thought from last week, because, uh, because here it is, church, what you believe about eternity determines how you live today. What you believe about, if you believe that you were an accident, that, that you're going nowhere, uh, then why not just live for the now and live for yourself? If you believe on the other hand, that you were created by a good God for his glory and that you will live somewhere forever, it will change the way you live today. It'll change the way you live. What you believe about eternity will determine how you live today. I also believe uh, this when it, when it comes to hell. If we don't accept the reality of hell, we will never appreciate the glory of the gospel and the goodness of Jesus. It's going to be really hard for us to, to fully grasp and understand and appreciate that. Um, and and so, so I hope that we see and accept the reality today that, that, that there is a hell and, and it is something that is very real um, and, and that people are there and going to be there. I hope uh, that, that I see and accept this reality. You know, I prayed a lot about how to teach this message this week and... Um, I had various working outlines and approaches and different ways of going about it. Uh, I had, you know, the classic hellfire and brimstone uh, possibility. We could have went there. Um, I had a a purely academic approach, like we're just going to walk through the facts as we know them. Um, I kind of had some some different thoughts, and, and, and ultimately, I want the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to do the teaching and to bring about heart change in this room. And so I want to go ahead and just go to the Lord in prayer. I know we've prayed a lot today, but you can't pray too much, I believe. Uh, and so I just want to go to the Lord today and, and pray as we begin. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would empower me to teach your word with grace and in truth in a way that would inspire us, God, to live differently today, knowing that there is so much at stake eternally. I ask that you would impart your truth in a way that would change lives in this theater this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So when I was a kid, uh, I went to this uh, vacation Bible school. This, this, this little neighborhood vacation Bible school at this small neighborhood church. Now, you might remember this about me if you've, if you've been coming for any sort of time and you've heard any bit of my story 
that um, I didn't I didn't grow up in church. I didn't know much about church or or about about Jesus in general growing up. But I had a few friends in my neighborhood who were going to this vacation Bible school uh, over summer, and and so they invited me. And I was like, okay, whatever, I'll give it a shot. I'll go hang out with you guys. I mean, I didn't have anything else to do. It was a way to get out of the house. And so I went, and you know what? I actually had a great time. I remember, I remember, I don't remember all the details of the week and what all we did, but I do remember a few little things. And I remember having a really, really great time. I ate the cookies, like with the holes in them. You remember? They're like kind of yellowish and they, they look like flowers and they have a hole and you you put them on your fingers. Right, so I remember doing that. I ate the cookies. I drank the Kool Aid. Right, the ones, the little jugs with the with the, you peel the top off. Okay, somebody knows this. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. Um, those were so good back then. They probably are terrible. I don't. I've not, I have not had one since I was a kid. We sang songs. I remember singing some songs. Like I remember learn the one song. I don't. The only song I remember. And again, I was not church. I, I didn't even know who Abraham was. But we sang a song called Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Yeah, you guys got it. You guys got it. Okay, so a, I remember that, and I had to perform that. They made us stand up and perform it in front of, like, all of the parents. And, um, and I, but I had a good time. I remember having a really, really good time, all sorts of VBS fun. And on the last day, they sat us down, and we had a come-to-Jesus moment. All right, so all the little kids, we sat crisscross applesauce, put us in a circle like we were about to play Duck, Duck, Goose, but we were not about to play Duck, Duck, Goose. And, and one of the grown-ups just stood right there looming over all of us, and they said, how many of you know for sure, so close your eyes, you know, close your eyes and don't look around, how many of you know for sure that if you died today that you would go to heaven? Now, I thought to myself, in my un- unchurched, non-believing kid brain, well, there is no way that you can know for sure. I mean, nobody can know that for sure. That's what I thought. And so they said, if you don't know for sure, I want you to raise your hand. So they all had, we all had our eyes closed, and, and little did I know that this was a Baptist vacation Bible school, and evidently all the Baptist kids on my street knew for sure where they were going except for me. And so I was the only kid to raise my hand. I lifted my hand up. I'm being honest. I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't know about heaven. So I raised my hand. And so two grown-ups, they just looked down at me. And, and I'm a little kid. Like, I'm just a small little Robbie here. And they looked down at me, and they said, if you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you're going to hell. Hell, hell. I can't prove it, but that's kind of what it felt like. I don't know if there was an echo, but I feel like if my memory is clear, it may have echoed and it reverberated fear throughout my little tiny soul. And so it said, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell. And I, like just the guttural hell, they really laid into it. That's how I heard it. And look, I know that they were well-intentioned. But when they said that I would go to hell, it scared, well, the hell out of me. Like it scared me. I was... I mean, I don't know about this. I mean, you're talking about heaven. I don't know about that. But now I'm really unsure and not really sure what's going on. And so, listen, I know that some of you have had similar experiences. Some of you have experienced something like that before. I know 
Maybe, maybe it was something different for you. You remember a conversation with your parents or with your Sunday school teacher or with an evangelist. Or Listen, I didn't make my profession of faith that day. In fact, it will probably be another seven or eight years uh, from that moment that I began to actually understand the gospel and accept Jesus' gift of salvation. But I do remember being terrified. I remember being just so terrified. I remember I, I would pray. I would pray to God, like, I don't even know who I'm praying to. I don't even know what I'm really doing, but God, please don't send me to hell. I used to pray as a little kid, don't send me to hell, please, God, whatever you do, I'll, I'll, I'll do something if you just don't send me. To, I pray before I go to sleep, don't send me. Sometimes, sometimes I'd be praying and I would fall asleep praying, and then I would wake up panicked because I felt like I didn't end the prayer with an amen, so maybe that prayer didn't actually count, and then, like, that would be a bad situation. And so I'd, I'd you know, wake up, and I'd finish the prayer. Amen. Don't send me to hell. Thank you. Um, I had nightmares. I remember having nightmares about, about hell and Satan when I was a kid. And, and listen, I had no idea what heaven and hell really was, other than what I saw in, like, pop culture. Even, even then... Even at that point, I still knew that hell was not a place I wanted to be. I was so afraid of going to hell. Maybe some of you can relate to that this morning. So again, what we're talking about today is very challenging. It's, very, it's a very uncomfortable subject. Like I didn't wake up today and go, oh boy, I get to go talk about hell this morning. Like that wasn't, like that's not how I got out of bed today. Um, but that's, that's, this is important. This is a, this is a real Thing that we need to discuss. This is a very difficult subject. In fact, according to a few surveys uh, from the last three years, I found, I found this out. 74% of people in our country believe in heaven. That's pretty good. 74%, basically three out of four people believe in some version of heaven. But according to the same research, only four in 10 people in our country believe in hell. So 74% of people in our country believe that there's a heaven, but only 40% believe that there is a hell. And that's what the average American believes. But when we look at Christians specifically, the number doesn't actually change a ton. You think it, it might, but it doesn't. A recent survey done shows that only 55% of professing Christians believe that hell is a real place. There's another 15% that are undecided, and 30% believe that there is no hell. These are professing Christians, believers. 30%, 15 don't even know. So basically... It shows our cafeteria version of Christianity. This is how I, how I view this data and how I look at it. It's, it's, it's a cafeteria version of Christianity. I'll take the good stuff that I like in the Bible, but I'm going to reject the more painful stuff like, like hell and, and Satan and punishment. Like I'm going to leave that out. I'm just going to take the good stuff. I want the grace and I want the mercy and I want the love, but I don't know about that other stuff. And so I'm going to I'm going to disregard that. In fact, I would argue based on my observation that the percentage of people who, who actually believe in and understand hell is, is much, much lower. So let's talk about it this morning. Let's start with the most basic of all questions, probably the most common question that people ask, and that is, why does hell exist? Why does hell exist? Well, that's a tough, tough question. Why would God, a loving God, create a place like hell in the first place? So let me, let me say this, when you ask that question, when you ask that question, I, I think it actually reveals a flaw in our understanding. It shows that we do not understand the holiness of God, and we don't really understand the horror of our sin. 
if we have to ask that question. So let's talk about two biblical reasons why hell exists. The first one, if you're taking notes, is this. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. For him to deal righteously with Satan. Now, you see a lot of people, maybe some people even in this theater this morning, think that Satan is the ruler of hell. Like he's kind of like the king of Hades or something. Like they've got this picture, like, okay, if I die and I go to hell, there's the devil and he's got like the little ear things and he's got the tail and he's got the pitchfork and he's like, all right, welcome to hell, right? Like that's the image that we have in our mind and they think that he's like the ruler of the kingdom of hell, but that's not the case. And in fact, particularly uh, the, the reason hell exists is to actually punish him. The words of Jesus, Matthew 25, 41. Uh, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, which we know as the demons. It was prepared for his torture. It was prepared for his judgment. And so one of the reasons that hell exists is a place for God to deal righteously with our spiritual enemy, the prince of darkness. The second reason uh, hell exists is, is for God to deal righteously with unbelievers. This is where we struggle. I think we're all okay with the first one. The second one is where it hits home for many of us. And here's what Scripture says very plainly, and I'm just going to read this to you, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. Uh, so, so 2 Thessalonians, starting in verse 8, he will what? Punish. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with, and say this part aloud, everlasting destruction. Listen, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I'm not going to lie, church. This is difficult stuff. This is a hard, these are hard verses to swallow. I don't expect a lot of amens when I'm talking about hell, but I hope that this will help with clarity this morning. There are other verses in the Bible that deal with hell, and certainly lots of opinions regarding the subject. Uh, but, with, but with the rest of our time today, with, with these two things in mind, this is why hell was created, so God could deal righteously with Satan, and so God could deal righteously with unbelievers. I want us to look at this story that's found in Luke chapter 16. And, and we're going to kind of just walk through this story and look at two different people. There's two characters in the story that we're going to meet. Uh, we're going to start in verse 19, two main characters. We're going to start by meeting the first player in the story. So Luke uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Let's press the pause button. Stop there and talk about this guy. Scripture says that there was a rich guy, a rich man. Now, we need to understand, he wasn't just like regular rich, right? He's not like just average rich. We read in this verse, and in the original Greek language, uh, Greek language you're going to discover that he was like mega rich. Like, we're talking about like a one percenter for sure. Uh, this man lived in luxury, and he feasted sumptuously. Not a word you hear every day. Uh, basically, what this means is he ate the finest of fine foods every day. The finest of foods every single day. Like, like the, the language implies it's, it's like the best and most expensive food around. Like, for example, just think in your head, if you think of your favorite, most expensive restaurant, maybe the one that you just go to once or twice a year on, or once or twice every two or three years on anniversaries, or the one you go to on birthdays when you're not the one paying because it's so expensive. Like, think of this restaurant. He basically just eats that every single day of his life. Like, all the time, this is what this man is eating. 
not once a year, but every day. Scripture says that he was dressed in purple and fine linens. Now, now, just to wear any piece of clothing that had purple in it uh, back then made you like off the charts rich because you had it had to be infused with dye. Purple wasn't a common color. In fact, it was it was actually the color of royalty. Like usually, just royalty wore the color purple. And, and so um, he had this fine linen that was very expensive. And and even like you know, theologians and and, and historians go back and they look at it and they say probably his clothes were probably so expensive because of the purple and the fine linen that that probably one day's outfit could pay for somebody else to eat for an entire year. Like that's how much, how expensive his clothing was and and, and what it could have done uh, for the people around him. So, so he we're talking like lifestyles of the rich and famous here. Like we're talking, this guy is mega rich. Like the Kardashians are keeping up with him. He's so rich. Like this is what's happening. He's a super, super rich dude, right? I just want you to get this in your mindset. This guy's loaded, okay? Let's meet the second character. We're going to find him in verse 20. And at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus. So we've got a rich guy, mega rich, and then we've got the poorest of poor, a, a lowly beggar with no home, with, with, no, with no food, with no money, with no job, laying at the gate of this man's house, covered with sores, Scripture says, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Just give me the scraps. I'll take anything off of your table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores, which admittedly is super gross. So, now, what do we know about the rich guys in this time? If you were extremely wealthy, and, and, and the reason I'm talking about food is because they, they talk about it. He, he ate sumptuously. It's very important that they threw that in there. And then, and then we see the, the poor guy, the beggar, who also just wanted some scraps off the table. And there's a reason why this was kind of put in there for you. So, um, here, here's, here's, if you were extremely wealthy, here's how you would eat. And, uh, and I encourage you, go home and try this. Uh, so if you're extremely wealthy, here's how you eat. There's no silverware, and so you would eat with your hands. Now, if you're really, really rich, you didn't have napkins. No, that's too pedestrian. Instead, you would actually clean your hands with a loaf of bread. You would take the bread, and you would just wipe all the, 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 the dirt, the goo, and the, and the sauces, and the, the juices, and whatever off your hand, and then you'd flip it over, and you'd do the same thing to the other, and what would happen is the crumbs would fall off of the bread onto the table or into a bowl. Sometimes they do it into a bowl, but they would fall down, and then the servants would come, and they would scoop up all the crumbs, and then those crumbs would then be generously given to the dogs outside or, in this case, a beggar laying at the gate. And so, so this man's eating just off the charts, delicious, amazing food. He's wiping his hands with bread. The crumbs are falling. Those crumbs are then being gone, taken outside and given to the, the, the poor beggar waiting outside for everything that falls from the rich man's table. Now, we, it's easy to have like a, just a bad view of this rich guy. Like this guy up there in his castle doing what he's doing, eating his food, his sumptuous food. Like I want some sumptuous food. Like we're, and so it's easy to have this. But listen, here's what we know. This rich guy, I don't think he was a bad guy. Like he was probably a pretty decent guy by our standards. Right? He knew Lazarus the beggar was out there. He knew he was waiting by the gate. He knew he was camping out by his front gate, but he didn't have the beggar arrested. We don't see that in Scripture. He didn't have him kicked off of his property. He was generous enough to let him get the filthy leftovers. 
but he obviously didn't know Jesus because he wasn't living out the gospel. Because like many of us, when you compare us with, with people in the rest of the world, he lived in luxury when there were people very close by in very great need, and he did absolutely nothing about it. So what happened to these two men? I wish we could spend more time on the story, but, but we're, we'll push on. What happened to these two men, the rich man and the poor man, when they died? This is a, it's an interesting thought. Let's pick up the story in verse 22. The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So the beggar goes to Abraham's side. Most people believe this is a place called paradise. Okay, this is a place uh, where those who know Jesus go after they die before the judgment. All right, you, you, you remember when Jesus was on the cross, he said to one of the, the, the thieves uh, on the cross, to, to the sinners there beside him, he said, you repented, and today you will be with me in paradise. He, he was at Abraham's side. So the beggar goes, and he's at Abraham's side. He was in a, a good place, but the rich man wasn't so lucky. Scripture goes on and says the rich man also died, and he was buried. Verse 23 tells us where he was. Uh, scripture, scripture says, now where was he? Hades, being in torment. Now, the, the Greek word here translated is the word Hades. This isn't just like my translation trying to like tone down the word hell and give you something more palatable. No, he, it actually is the word Hades, which is often mistaken for the word hell. It's equivalent to the Old Testament word Sheol. If you remember reading in the Old Testament and reading through and seeing that word Sheol, like what is Sheol? Where does that, is that like a, is that like a place to go, a city to visit? Is that a vacation spot? Like I don't know. So it's, it's, we're talking about Hades. Uh, Sheol is not, a, Hades and Sheol are not the same thing as hell. Hades is apparently a temporary place after life on earth before the judgment where people without Christ Go. So we read in scripture, and there's there's a lot that we could dive into with the idea of paradise and 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 Sheol and and what how that works, and that's more of a uh, an eschatology sermon that we maybe will do somewhere later down the road. Uh, but but here's just what we see in scripture. So he's he's with Abraham, the the poor guy, the beggars with Abraham, and we see the rich guy. He's gone on, and he is now in Hades. He's in he's in torment. It says in scripture, uh, and we we actually read this later on that that Hades will. Uh, eventually be thrown into what is called uh, the limne, which is Greek for lake of fire. And so this was a clear, horrible place that, had a sh- that was a strong precursor to another horrible place. And so there's, again, so much more to explore there, but we'll just like put a pin in that. Um, here he was in Hades. He was in torment. And, and scripture goes on and says that, that he, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off uh, in the distance. Um, and, and, and he called out, right? He saw, he saw Abraham far off. He saw Lazarus at his side. And, and so we've got this rich guy. Uh, he's in torment. If you read the whole story, there's this big like chasm between the two of them. He can't cross it. The poor guy is on the other side. He's doing great. And the rich guy's over here. He's utter, utterly miserable. And then he called out. He said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's begging, begging, please, please, please have mercy, Abraham. He recognizes him. He sees him in that moment. He knows who he is, and he recognizes his situation and where he's at, and he, he sees it's not good. And, and so he, he begs him. He says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So obviously, listen, we can't fill the emotion just by reading this. But, but you can just imagine what it's like. You can just imagine what he's going through. And what he's, please, I'm begging you, just, just a finger in water to touch my tongue. 
because I am hurting in such a way I can't even describe. I am in pure and utter anguish. All right, so he's suffering, he's in pain, he's in torment. And so I think this, this begs the question, what do we really know about hell? We don't, we don't know a lot, but, but if you're taking notes, we know immediately that hell is a place of unspeakable suffering. Unspeakable suffering. Just a couple of different verses from the New Testament that will give us a bit of insight. Uh, Matthew 5, 29, the words of Jesus, he said, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. <clears throat> now, it's very easy for us just to read through that quickly and not really pause and think about it. Okay, so I want you to really think about the imagery that's being portrayed here. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, just gouge it right out of there. All right, I want you to just imagine doing this. Just digging your finger in, your, in there, just getting it in there, getting a knife, doing something, and just popping that puppy right out of there. Right, you've got, you've got the, the eye juices and the blood streaming down your face. You're hanging on by the optical nerve. I mean, it's a gross scene to think about, but this is what we're talking about. He said, even that, just rip it out and throw it away because that would be better than being punished for your sins. And if that's not enough, he goes on in verse 30, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Unspeakable suffering. There's another verse that's found in Revelation 14, and, and, and this was an angel speaking about those who would worship the beast. And he said, uh, those who worship the beast uh, also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark in his name. So what does the Bible say about hell? All throughout scripture, it's called a fiery furnace. It's called a place of burning sulfur. It says in hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place described as an outer darkness. I see a lot of people like maybe on TV, or I've even heard people say something to this effect in, in, in person, like, yeah, well, you know, it's all right if, I, if I'm going to hell. I'll, at, least, at least I'll be there with a lot of friends. At least I'm going to have a lot of pals there, and we're going to hang out, and, and we're going to drink some beers, and we're going to play some poker, right? False. I, I believe that there will be complete and total separation. We're going to be isolated from God, separated from his love, and I believe from other people as well. In fact, how do you punish the worst of criminals? In prison, you put them in solitary confinement. You separate them from the general population, from the masses. That is, that is another way of just utter torture. So you can imagine this physical pain begging for just a drop of water. This, this torment that lasts forever and ever, Scripture says. And the louder and longer you scream for relief, the more you realize that nobody is ever coming. Church, I know this is difficult and it and it's harsh and it's not encouraging and it's scary but this is very real and this is the way that scripture describes this place in fact there there's also a place that's compared to or, or used to, to represent what hell is like if you haven't heard it before it's it's uh it's a it's a place it's a word called uh, gehenna 
And, and it's a word that's used in 11 different verses, 13 different times throughout Scripture. And, um, and, it, and it comes from the Valley of Hammam, and, and w- which is a place in the Old Testament. And, and eventually this Valley of Hammam became known as Gehenna. And, and then a lot of, uh, and then in Scripture, that, that word Gehenna then starts to be used as, as, uh, as sort of a parallel to to hell. And, and so the, this, this place, this Gehenna, it means the, the place of everlasting punishment. And, and in the Valley of Hinnom, and this is why it became known as this, in the Valley of Hinnom, there is a very real place. It's a place where the fi- there was a fire that burned perpe- perpetually there. There was a fire that was always burning. And initially, uh, there were some people there who worshipped a false god named Malek, and, and, and he was the fire god, and you were required to take your firstborn son and offer your firstborn son to him by putting him in this everlasting burning fire. And so people did this because they worshipped him, and they wanted to, uh, they wanted to, to, to serve him and do his bidding, and so they did that. And this place, the Valley of, uh, of Hinnom, became known as Gehenna, which is a real place, again, south of Jerusalem, and eventually it became a huge garbage dump. Uh, it was a place where the, this fire constantly burned and never went out, so people would take the bodies of dead criminals and they would throw them into the fire. They would take the bodies of dead animals and they would throw them into the fire. They would take all the garbage from the city and they would bring it out there and throw it into the fire, and, and, the, and the fire would never burn out. And, and whenever the wind would shift and move towards the city, the smell was so horrible that, that account, all accounts say people didn't even want to come out of their homes because it smelled so bad because of this, this burning, this sulfur and this trash and this burning flesh and all this stuff just wafting over the city. So Gehenna, this place where the fire burns out, is, is, is a mere slight comparison to what hell is like. So the rich guy, he was in a place of torment, uh, a place the Bible calls Hades at this point. So he realized uh, as much as he begged, he's in this moment, as much as he begged, he's not getting out. He's come to this realization. And so all of a sudden he recognized that this is where I'm at. This is where I am. This is what's going on. And so a strategy sort of shifts a little bit. And, and, and all of a sudden uh, he, he changes his approach. And watch what he says in verse 27. He says to Father Abraham, he says, um, Father Abraham stuck in my head now. He says to, he says to Abraham and he said, he said uh, then I beg you, I bet, again, he's begging. I want you to feel the emotion that would, that would be behind this. He's realizing his plight. He's realizing where he is. He's realizing what's going on. He knows that there is no escape. He's not getting out. And so he is begging. He is pleading. He is throwing himself at the mercy of Abraham right now. I'll do anything. Send me to my father's, send him. He's talking about Lazarus. Send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. You can almost hear him saying it like, like I love these guys. I don't want them here. So, so what do we know about this rich guy in this moment? He believed in hell. I mean, if he's there. His, his life at that moment reflected a very sincere belief in hell. And, and most of ours doesn't. It doesn't. I say that. I say it doesn't because if we really believed in the rewards of heaven that we talked about last week and the reality of hell, if we really believed, not just hear it and, 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 and log it away, not just have knowledge of, but truly believe, then I don't know about you, but my life would be dramatically different. And that's hard to admit, but if I'm really, really honest, church, that is the gut level truth. If I really believe this right here, what we're talking about, then I think my life would look dramatically different than it does. 
So what do we see from this story? I've pulled out four quick lessons that we can learn from the other side. The first one is this, is we need to acknowledge the rich man was fully conscious. He was fully aware. His memory was active. He was aware of the pain. He wasn't in some kind of soul sleep. Okay, he knew what was going on. He was conscious and he was hurting. That's that's an important point because some people would say that maybe we do enter some sort of soul sleep. We don't actually experience all the pain and the torture. Again, why would a, a God do that to us? Again, we're not understanding the holiness of God and the the full consequences of our sin. He was fully conscious. Uh, The second thing was this. His eternal destiny was irrevocable. Could not be changed. He could not buy his way out. He realized this in the moment. He realized, I cannot buy my way out. I cannot beg my way out. I, I cannot work my way out. It was done. His eternal destiny was settled on earth. And on the other side, there was no way out. The third thing, and I'm drawing this, this is my conclusion, is, is I believe this. I, I think this from, from what I see and what I don't see, and, and this, is, this is my understanding. He knew what he was experiencing was just. I think in the moment, while he was there, he, he realized and understood that it was just. Notice he complained about the pain, but he never complained about the injustice. He didn't say, this isn't fair. Nobody told me. He complained about the pain, but he never complained about the injustice because he knew that it was just. And then the fourth thing that we see from this guy is this, and and he he pleaded for someone to help his loved ones know Jesus. He he understood where he was. He understood the ramifications. He understood his his plight and, 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 and probably what the rest of eternity held for him. And he knew in this moment he did not want this to happen to other people. You see, this guy really believed and really understood the reality and the horror of hell. And I would say that most of us don't. Most of us don't. Like, think of it this way, and I said this last week, uh, or something to this effect. If I were Satan, I would try to convince you that, that hell is not really that big of a deal. I mean, I would try to convince you that hell's not real, and, and that's, that's sometimes a thing, but, but I'll try to convince you that hell's not really that big of a deal. Uh, and if I did that, then two things would happen. Number one, people around the world would easily reject Christ, and, and they would have no fear of God whatsoever. And we see this right now in our culture. We see this in our world, no fear of God whatsoever. The second thing that would happen is, is if I, again, if I were the enemy, I would convince you that, that hell's not that big of a deal. And, and, and if I did that, then you wouldn't share your faith. And those of you who are Christians, let's be just brutally honest here today. Most of you don't share your faith. Some of you have got a a mom or a dad who's not a believer, a brother or a sister, a son or a daughter, uh, a best friend or someone that you work with or someone that you see every week at the gym or someone that you went to school with or someone that you haven't prayed with. uh, If uh, You haven't even prayed for them in over a year. Like we don't even, we don't share our faith, but we don't even pray for them. You haven't talked to them about the love of Jesus or really even shown it with your life because really sometimes we don't look that much different than the people around us who don't believe in Jesus. In fact, sometimes people who don't believe in Jesus look even better than we do. This is why I would say that most of us really don't believe 
hell is real. And I'm going to put myself right there in the middle of them because I can tell you that I believe it in here. I can tell you that I study it and I believe it and I know it. But I have to check myself because if I really believed it, then my life would look dramatically different. And you know what? It must. It has to. Our life has to look different. We, we, all of ours does, everybody in here in church, we claim to be something different. We claim to be something that this city needs. The, the lost and the hurting people need. We claim to, to have that. The Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus Christ. And so why, we just, why don't we live that out? Why don't we share the gospel? Why don't we get out of God's way and let him work through us? I think as I was like studying this, I just, I was just, my prayer for you guys, my prayer for myself is I just beg that, that some of us would step across the line and say that we're going to die to ourselves. I want to die to myself and live for Christ. I want to do everything within my power and the power of the spirit living in me to make sure that the people around me don't end up in hell. I want to finish with this story. I know we've been bouncing around a little bit. I'm going to finish, finish up with the story, and then, and then we'll, we'll pray. And There's a man named Charles Peace. He was a, a notorious criminal, a murderer, um, and he finally got convicted for his crimes in the 1800s in England. And, and the day he was scheduled to be hanged, he was, visited by a, uh, he was visited by a chaplain who went through this typical chaplain spiel, right, which is, you know, like you need to know Jesus if you want to go to heaven. If you don't, you're going to go to hell. And, and so the chaplain was going through this, this whole deal. He was going through his speech, and, and, and Charles uh, Peace, he was, he was moments away from dying, and he said, excuse me, do you believe that? And the chaplain was like, well, you know, yeah, I think so. And he said, wait, wait, you're, you're telling me that I'll go to hell, and that hell is, is real. Do you really believe in hell? The chaplain said, well, you know, yeah, I think so. I believe I do. And I want to read to you what Charles P. said because I think it is profound. He said, sir, I do not share your faith, but if I did, if I believed what you say you believe, then although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and the breadth of it on hand and knee and think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of which you speak. If I believed in this place, as you say, my life would reflect it. Minutes away from execution. Let me, let me tell you what gets under my skin. Let me tell you what, what freaks me out a little bit, especially as I read and studied this week. When I, when I read about who Jesus was warning about hell in the New Testament, let me tell you who he wasn't talking to. He wasn't talking to the tax collectors who were considered to be the worst of all sinners. He wasn't talking to the prostitutes. He, he wasn't talking to uh, the, he, the drunks. He wasn't talking to anything like that. Do you know who Jesus talked to? The religious people. The Pharisees. He was talking to the, to the Pharisees. That's who he warned. That, that's who he said, hey, this is what's coming. This is, this is very real. And those who claim the faith but didn't live it, and, and that is very sobering to me because I want us to be a church that lives it. 
that lives it out every single day, that owns it. Either we believe it or we don't. And if we do, then our lives should be dramatically different. I'm completely aware that many of you are thinking right now, like, I don't know if I want to believe in a God like this, a God who would send people to hell, a God that would send good people to hell. This is a fundamental breakdown of where our our society and even our Christianity culture is today. In fact, this may be the number one root problem and misbelief about our nature and about God because God doesn't send good people to hell. What we have to understand is inherently by nature, we are not good people. We're not good. And I know this goes against everything the culture teaches you. Well, I've got a good heart. Nope, our heart is wicked. Oh, I'm a good person. I don't, you know, uh, no. I lie, I cheat, I've stole. I'm guessing you have too. I, if, if you, for a moment, stood, if you just stood in front of the holiness of God, you would recognize the depth of your wickedness. We are not inherently good people. By nature, we inherited a sin nature. We're sinful All of us have sinned, and we have to recognize this about God. He is holy, and he is just. He cannot be holy without being just. And and, and because he is just, he must punish wrongdoing. But God is not only just. He is also love. Love is not just what he does. Love is who he is. And I just want to read some verses from Scripture real quick. I know we're we're stretching it, we're getting a little long, but I want to read these verses to you here this morning. And if maybe you went to VBS like I did that one time as a kid, and so maybe you've heard some of these verses, but I want you to hear them. I want you to listen like you've never heard them before. I want you to listen to them like you were hearing them for the first time. Um, those of you who maybe have never heard them, I want you to, to, to embrace them and listen to what the Scripture is saying to you. Feel the love of your Heavenly Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For the wages of our sin is death. That's what we deserve, right? That's what we deserve is, is death. But the gift of God from his goodness, his love is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And how did God show his love? God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, while we still rejected him, and and while we didn't know him, while we were still spitting in his face. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from condemnation. What did Jesus' death and resurrection do? It paid the price for our sins, satisfying God's justice and simultaneously displaying uh, his amazing grace and unquenchable love. Jesus said if a shepherd uh, has a hundred sheep and one of them gets away, he will leave the 99 to go after the one. That's how good he is. Some of you, you need to understand he is coming after you today, not in judgment, but in love. He desires that no one should perish, so much so that he sent his son. No one loves more than that, than to lay down their lives for those who do not know him. Jesus didn't come for the perfect, he came for the sinners. He didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. Satan is a thief, okay, he is a liar. Scripture says this, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said that I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. And that's why we want people to know him today. Not just to avoid the horrors of hell, but to experience the grace and the goodness and the power and the love and the mercy. Come on, somebody. The holiness, the righteousness, the love of our good God. So why do we talk about hell? 
because what you believe about eternity affects how you live today. And if we don't understand the horrors of hell, we'll never truly appreciate the goodness and the beauty and the grace of the price that God paid by sending his son so that we could have life eternal. So Father, we pray that in in your truth, your word would transform us. God, just like the rich man on the other side with his sense of urgency to reach his brothers, God, give us an eternal perspective. God, help us to live, help us to live for what lasts. We know the enemy. He's gonna tell us hell's not real. It doesn't really matter, but God, help us to know you, your truth, your power, your grace, to live in light of what lasts forever. 